Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Sarah Jacobs. And I'm Alan Murabayashi. Alan, we've talked a lot about the website Unsplash. Oh yeah, we sure have. <laughs> we definitely have because we both have negative feelings towards it. Not a fan. Um, <laughs> Unsplash is a user-based website that photographers can create an account and upload images. But the special little twist about Unsplash is that it then makes those images free for anyone to use. Um, And this past week, uh, photographer Chris Alex's images of two dancers was used for a PSA for UK's National Cybersecurity Center. This had come to your attention, Alan, through Twitter uh, via Zach Arias, a fantastic photographer, who had retweeted Syrian Jenkins' tweet about the PSA, notifying people that Fatima's Dance School responds, um, Vibes in Motion Dance Studio, which is actually located in Atlanta, Georgia, (laughs) um, told Channel 4 News that they are, quote, deeply disturbed by the improper use of the photograph and that they are actually taking legal action. Zach Arias, the photographer, had tweeted out, it's almost like I tried to warn people about using Unsplash. This incident sort of uncovers problems um, with Unsplash and with also with photographers, you know, not protecting their subjects' rights. My biggest question is really, you know, why is UK's national cybersecurity using images that come from a free <laughs> website that don't have model releases? That's a very good point. You know, a couple of years ago, Zach did a pretty deep dive into Unsplash. He released multiple videos uh, on YouTube talking about like all the detrimental things that Unsplash was doing to the industry and why you shouldn't trust content from it and why as photographer creators, you shouldn't uh, upload your your images to it. Um, I had written a couple of op-ed pieces uh, along the same lines throughout the years that sort of corroborate everything that Zach, Zach was saying about this stuff. It you know they they take no responsibility for how the images are used because they extend you a license that says you can use it for commercial or non-commercial purposes. You don't have to pay. You don't have to attribute, although it's nice to attribute. I mean, it just it makes no sense in the context of uh, intellectual property, and even in the context of of like you live in a capitalist society. Like, how does any of this make sense to protect your subjects, to 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 make right. money, to make a living, to value photography as a art form or as a business discipline? Right. So all of that was like very interesting. You bring up a very good point, which is why is an organization uh, trying to get away with using free photos. You know, mm. the girl's name was not Fatima. It was Desiree, right? right? She was <laughs> actually a dancer uh, in Atlanta, as you point out. You know, part of that responsibility falls a lot on the shoulders of the photographer. You know, Chris Alex, I'm looking at her website. She has some nice work. She, she presumably works at least part-time as a professional photographer. And I don't know what she was thinking when she uploaded these images of clearly identifiable people to this website. It For makes sure. no sense to me. I I definitely, you know, right when I heard the news, I was like, okay, I don't want to like place immediate blame on the photographer. Maybe she just didn't know. You know, you don't expect your images to be used in this in this type of way. Um, but 
then and and I still do mostly blame on Splash um, and this cybersecurity uh, center for using the image in the first place. But then Chris Alex came out with a video uh, through Flipped on YouTube, um, which is titled hashtag the art share, where she talks about the experience of getting notified that this image was going viral on the Internet because people were like, why did they use this photo? Why are they discouraging, you know, young girls from being in, you know, dancers in the arts, et cetera. And in the video, you know, she, she talks more about how she felt seeing it and all that, but I really wanted her to at least acknowledge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I uploaded the photo, you know? <laughs> and also, you know, if you are hired as a model to be a part of a stock photo shoot or a commission shoot, you understand that your likeness can be used in a certain way. And even sure. for models who are signing model releases, they typically have uh, moral clauses that will say, you can't use my uh, photo to advertise, for example, cigarettes because I'm morally opposed to people smoking, right? Now, can you imagine this young dancer, Desiree, being told that, oh, this photographer is going to come by and take some nice portraits. And then all of a sudden you're given a fake name and right. basically the, the thing that you're training for is being devalued. The, the whole right, point right. of this government ad is to be like, there's no future in dance. Why don't you become a cybersecurity <laughs> expert? Uh, which is right, not right. So, you know, there was a lot of outrage, I think from the photographer side about using someone's image in a certain way and outrage uh, among people who are, are sort of morally opposed to Unsplash. And then on Facebook, I came upon sort of a different interpretation, which I thought was really fascinating. And instead of criticizing, you know, the appropriation of Desiree's image, this person was commenting that, oh, why didn't you give credit to the hairstylist and the graphic designer and the typography designer and the architect who built the building that she's sitting in. And I was like, what? What does this take? <laughs> it, was, it was just interesting because, you know, we, we all have our biases about what, what's important in our, in our life. And this mm -hmm. to me was, I think it was a valid take about who gets credit in these productions. But to me, it completely missed the point of, of the appropriation of the likeness for something mm -hmm. that wasn't approved. Yeah, I think my favorite meme uh, was someone who rewrote the copy that says, Fatima's already got a f***ing job as a dancer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, during the age of COVID, I don't know that any, any performers are really getting paid for their job. But uh, yes, uh, I mean, the arts are vitally know. important. Don't read the comment section on Petapixel. That's all I'll say about this particular article. Oh, God. And also don't upload to Unsplash. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. If you have any photos up there, take them down immediately. Exactly. Speaking of giving artists credit, there is a movement that I found pretty interesting uh, from the Grammys where they're saying, uh, give your artists hashtag give credit where it's due. So a bunch of artists, including the hip hop rapper uh, Anderson Pack, have started uh, tweeting out or in their Instagram posts uh, listing producers and composers and creative directors and engineers and mixers and master, mastering engineers, et cetera. Uh, I think it's a pretty healthy thing to do. It also gives the casual listener an understanding of how many people are involved 
and the production mm -hmm. of, of like a song. You know, we think it's just a lone person in their their bedroom, you know, making beats. And in some cases it is, but uh, in these larger productions, it is a army of people that, that make these songs possible. And I was thinking in terms of photography, like who comes to mind of who's regularly giving credit. And we've talked about Art Streber before, who does a lot of BTS style posts on Instagram. And he's always talking about his crew, uh, assistants, hairstylists, uh, wardrobe people. Um, and, you know, a lot of photographers work alone, so it's not, uh, there's no one to give credit to. But for those who are working with the crew, it's a really, really nice gesture, I think. Uh, and again, it gives viewers an idea of what it takes to to create these massive productions. Yeah, absolutely. I always love when I see a photo assistant tagged um, in a in a major shoot because it gives me somebody new to follow on Instagram or you know someone's work to discover and find out about new and up and coming photographers. Yeah, and in a lot of cases, you know, the assistants are aspiring photographers who, while mm -hmm. they're trying to carve out their their niche in a business, are working as assistants for second, third, you know, um, grabbing coffee, digital texts, et cetera. So yeah, it's nice to see all of that stuff. There has been a slew of online print sale auctions uh, this year for various causes. Um, but another one caught both of our eyes this past week, and it's called States of Change. It is in partnership with Movement Voter Project and all the net proceeds from the fundraiser uh, will be distributed to grassroots organizations fighting to work for voter suppression, um, and particularly in the states of Arizona, Florida, Michigan, um, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Well, I'm really proud that I knew all the abbreviations for those states that we <laughs> had. I hope so. so. That was like a test. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you would you would hope so, Alan, but you just don't know. For, for this particular sale, which actually has already ended, unfortunately, it was only like a five-day run or something like that. Um, all prints were $150. They were printed on 10 by 12 paper. And I mean, there were some phenomenal names and prints and just the photos were just like unbelievable. But after the Sea and Black incident that happened uh, earlier this summer, um, where a curator... Uh, or historian from the Whitney had purchased prints from a very similar type setup um, of a print sale and then was going to show the images, I immediately wanted to know what are the terms and conditions of buying these? Did this auction, you know, lay those out? And they did. <laughs> they sure did. Uh, it was really interesting to read the terms and conditions of sale. So there were two that sort of caught my eye. Number one, you must not display the artwork in a museum, gallery, exhibition, or otherwise public nature without the express written consent of the artist. And number two, you must not resell the artwork without the express consent of the artist. thought those were really, yeah. I mean, it, it solves the sea and black problem because it would have eliminated a, a public exhibition of the images. And, exactly. And because these artists were largely discounting their work, for the purposes of supporting charities, this also prevents, uh, you know, the the first buyer from marking up a resale. You couldn't turn around and sell it on eBay, for example. Exactly, and you know, like Cindy Sherman was participating, Alex Soth was participating. Mm -hmm. There were like heavy hitters in there. Um, Absolutely. So there was value in having that language. The thought that crossed my mind immediately was: Can you actually enforce 
any of this stuff. And so I sent mm. a note to the Copyright Zone guys, uh, photographer Jack Resnicki and lawyer Ed Greenberg, about this. They, they literally wrote a book about copyright for photographers. And Ed has done a ton of copyright litigation in the courts. So it's not just, you know, writing settlements out of court. He's also in courts talking about it. He knows his stuff. And he said, theoretically and practically, two parties can agree on any legal terms and conditions of sale or donation of a registered or unregistered work. So he says, I can donate a photo to be used in the lobby of NYU Langone Hospital uh, for so long as it's private for-profit hospital. Should it become a government-run non-profit hospital, I get it back at their expense. So ah. it seems like the contract of sale is legally binding. And really, if that's all it takes is these two terms for any sort of print sale uh, in the future, then I would encourage all photographers to use that sort of language uh, where yeah. deemed necessary. I'm pretty bummed that I missed out on this sale. If I had had like endless funds, I would have absolutely bought the Henry Hornstein's um, 1972 image of Dolly Parton. Like, yeah. Henry. Oh, just a gorgeous, gorgeous shot of her. Like iconic. I, I have Henry's book on black and white photography. So yeah, I mean, the, the span of like age ranges of the photographer, young and old, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, it, it really was an impressive uh, curatorial job. It really was. And the, the curation was done by eight different artists, um, all of whom kind of focus on fine art photography or mixed media art. There was like one commercial creative director in there. The only name I personally recognized was uh, Aliz Alexandra Serengeti, who is repped by Magnum. It's a good reminder uh, to go vote. So if you haven't <laughs> voted, that's the whole point of the fundraiser, guys. Go vote. Right. Yes. A couple of weeks ago on the show, Alan, you and I talked uh, a lot about delivery room photography and women having, you know, the birth of their children being documented by professional photographers. Um, and this past week in the New York Times, there was a stunning photo essay um, by photographer Maggie Shannon, who's based out of L.A., titled Extreme Pain, but also Extreme Joy. And she documented midwives that have been working with mothers um, who have kind of had to shift their birth plans because of COVID-19. And, you know, originally many wanted to just, you know, go to the hospital, do the regular thing, but then realized, wait, I want my husband to, you know, the, the father to be in the room. I want my partner to be in the room. Um, and so they turned to midwives. And so these images are just extremely... Um, moving. They're beautiful. Maggie usually shoots in color, but for this story, they were all black and white, but she still used her signature flash. Um, and the second that I saw them, I just, for some reason, just all of a sudden in my mind thought of Eugene Smith's country doctor, Yeah, you know, of these, of these doctors, um, you know, they're not, no one's masked. It's very different than the medical images that we have been seeing throughout COVID, you know, where doctors have on, you know, basically the hazmat suits. That's not the case in these images. Everyone, you know, is unmasked. It's very intimate. Um, it's just a beautiful essay. There's a very old timey feel to the style of photography. Of course, the black and white for some people make you think of old style photography. But I think that the, um, 
the 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 use of flash that's slightly off camera in the way that like a speed graphics would have like a big flash tube off to the side a little bit just creates this quality of light that if you told me this stuff was shot you know in 1960 I might believe you except mm-hmm. for you know maybe the hairstyles aren't quite aren't quite uh, aligning with with that that moment um but man the the emotion that you get from some of these images the main protagonist is a woman named Taylor Almodovar. There's an image of her trying to give birth where her husband is behind her. Uh, the, the midwife and maybe a, a helper are, are kind of near her legs. And you see the pain in her face, but you also see just like this like beautiful naked body. I mean, everyone in these images is also mm-hmm. incredibly photogenic. Yeah. For, for Even while giving birth. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Uh, I mean, it, you know, you could almost sell these as like commercial advertising in a way. <laughs> but I was really, really, really struck uh, by these images. And, and I think that it, it got a really good response uh, online as well. Yeah. The only thing that I thought was, Oh my goodness, I cannot imagine having a flash going off while I was in labor. Like, I, I just feel like that would be a little abrasive, but you're pro- they probably weren't even focused on it. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, but, but I did think about that, just like being in intense pain, having a flash go off. But then at the end of the day, you get an amazing Maggie Shannon shot. So like, and a baby, so who cares? (laughs) (laughs) So Maggie has an MFA from the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Uh, She was a PDN emerging photographer in 28. She was a Magnum 30 under 30. And she said in relation to photographing this story, quote, I've never documented anything with so much emotion in it, not only extreme pain, but also extreme joy. And I think she really captured that stuff incredibly well in her essay. Awesome work, Maggie. You know, we talked about some of this travel photography in the New York Times a few weeks ago. They have a series called World Through a Lens, which I just thought was, you know, some ongoing series of, of travel photography. They published a, a new uh, series this past week um, in the Tongass National Forest photographed by Christopher Miller. So I was digging a little bit deeper to understand what this series is about. And it turns out that it was created in response to COVID. And instead of assigning photographers to shoot new work, they found photojournalists who had done previous travel work um, and tried to create what they call visual, immersive visual experiences. And the other thing that was notable about this work was that the photographers not only shot the images, but they also wrote the accompanying article as well. And we talked about Gary He's foodie newsletter in New York City a few uh, weeks ago about how he was doing the writing as well as the uh, photographing. Mm. And, you know, all of this work is stunning. Christopher Miller's work, he's based in Juneau. He's done a lot of travel work for the New York Times. Incredible. And then we had also talked about Caleb Kenna's work in Vermont a few weeks ago. This guy, extensive portfolio of travel stock imagery in Vermont and India, and he's done a ton of drone photography. And boy, that little river kayak image he has is stunning. Stunning. I didn't think the water could be that blue in Vermont. 
really it's amazing. You love you love the drone stuff. I knew <laughs> I you would pull that one. Yeah, I, I can't <laughs> help myself. <laughs> My favorite was a glance at the daily life among caretakers of Britain's small islands by Alex Ingram. Um, just really stunning environmental portraits, and all the light is that really hazy, overcast kind of gray. Um, and these islands, I mean, they literally have one to two people in their population and they're the people that take care of it. I mean, it's just, that's a great photo essay. He's not afraid of the grain, you know, he, yeah. he sort of embraces the grain and it gives, it gives it a very textural feel, mm -hmm. um, that maybe, you know, when digital is too crisp, you kind of, it feels a little sterile, but these feel like, you know, dirt in your hands a little bit. Totally. And it really brings that timelessness to the photograph, which makes sense because these are islands that are, you know, they're not populated. These people are not sitting on their computer at Facebook. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> they're, they're out there doing the work. And the London-based photojournalist uh, Monica Goya did some wonderful work in the Dolomites. I'm just dying to go visit them because they seem so picturesque. But, you know, this, this series for is bringing uh, travel ideas to me. My list is going to be very, very long by the time the, the pandemic ends. Absolutely. All these different places I want to go to. Alan, you should pitch one about Hawaii. You, you, you know, totally should. You know. Well, I might have to get my drone license first. Oh, right. Before you like publicize. Okay, got it, got it. No, but I'm, I'm happy to see the New York Times, you know, they, the Lens blog shuttered, what, like uh, over a year now? Yeah. Um, or so ago. And I just continue to be very happy with the way that they're moving photography into other aspects um, of the paper and into different sections. And I think this is a, a lovely way to do that through this thing, world through a lens. One of the criticisms of the lens blog was it didn't pay particularly well. And because of mm -hmm. the circulation of the New York Times, it really limited the opportunities for publication in other uh, media outlets uh, at least in the United States. And so it was kind of like you were making a deal with the devil uh, to to sort of get the eyeballs, but not necessarily the pay. I, I do mm. like the fact that, you know, they weren't going out to commission these photographers. This was essentially pre-shot, in a lot of cases, personal stories for these photographers. Um, so it doesn't feel as uh, much of an economic hardship uh, for these images to be published in this way in the New York Times. So... I'm glad mm -hmm. there, there's a way for, you know, photographers to, to be making money during the pandemic. And finally, we're seeing a lot of results from photo contests. The National History Museum in the UK released their Wildlife Photographer of the Year. And as usual, stunning images. The grand title winner is called The Embrace by Sergei Gorshov out of Russia. It's a huge tiger hugging a tree. You know, they often do that sort of rub rubbed themselves and he used a camera trap and uh, just nailed this image. In going through these <laughs> images, I'm, I'm so fascinated by how the hell did people get some of these images mm -hmm. um, and reading some of the technical details, it's sort of mind blowing. There's a image of two wasps uh, by Frank Deschendol out of France uh, and the equipment that he used to photograph it. I'm, I'm just mind blown, mind blown. I mean, I, I feel like wildlife photographers, like not only do you have to have extreme technical skill that is, you know, at its best, but you also have to have a ton of patience. I mean, the, <laughs> oh God, the yeah. winner, 
you know, the winner of this that took the image of the tiger that you referenced, the Siberian tiger, waited something like 11 months to get this shot. I mean, that's, that's real dedication. Well, he, he got the grand prize, so I guess it was worth it in the end. Totally. And the cut's Hannah Gold. It caught her attention, and she literally asked on the cut, really happy for this photograph to have won a prestigious award, but maybe it could win the rest of the awards now, too, and we can call it a day? Like, she, she was just all about it. You know, <laughs> I can't fully disagree with that. Uh, you know, we have, we've expressed pretty mixed feelings about the, the value and utility of photo contests especially as they've become more commercialized and, you know, entry fees have gone up and prizes have stayed mm-hmm. low. But I think the National History Museum does a pretty good job. And, and all of these winners are incredible images. So I'll let it slide for now. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode. Hit that subscribe button if you can. And if you want to tweet at us with some ideas or feedback, you can always tweet at PhotoShelter. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.